So what I'm going to do is kind of give a world, start off giving a whirlwind history tour because I think it's important to, to appreciate and understand what's, a, what's now has the potential to happen. It's important to understand where we've come from. So let me begin there. So nutrition as a field is just about 100 years old, you could argue, because it's just about 99 years ago that the term vitamin was invented, for example. Um, and in 1941 is when the, the, the National Research Council first established the recommended dietary allowances. And so in between this period is, was this fervent period when the vitamins and, and major minerals that we now identify as being essential for the body were, were all characterized and identified and named and characterized um, chemically. Uh, in, in the post-World War II period is what's, what could be called the protein era, where it was thought that the limiting factor globally was protein. And there was a lot of emphasis on, on intervention and programming to, to try to address a uh, protein gap. And that ended quite abruptly in 1973 when uh, the World Health Organization uh, reissued a revision of the protein requirement, which basically said, uh, well, you've got it all wrong. And this period, uh, the, the period following that, when this happened, it was incredibly damaging for the field of nutrition. There was a tremendous loss of credibility. For example, um, the, the NCAP longitudinal study, the first generation of data collection in Guatemala was a four-country study. Um, clearly now with the third generation of data collection, there's no question it's the most important single study ever done in the field of nutrition. The data collection for the first generation started in 1969, ended in 77. It started off as a way of testing whether protein supplementation to women and to young children would be beneficial in the long term. By the time the, the data collection ended, the whole game had changed completely and it was just luck that it turned out there was a major energy difference in the two supplements that were being used and tested so that the study in fact proved useful anyway. Um, I put here that 1974 is when the Division of Nutritional Sciences formed it at Cornell. Um, that's important uh, conceptually because Mel Nesheim, who was in poultry science, was asked to form the division, and Mel had this idea. I don't know how Mel got this idea, but uh, there was a little bit of prior history, but Mel decided that nutritional sciences needed to be very broad in scope, and so he hired social scientists, behavioral scientists, went out and recruited an anthropologist uh, whose reaction was, why would I ever want to be in a nutrition department and convince them to come? Jean-Pierre Habeck, who had uh, led this study, was enticed to come in 1977. And this was kind of codified in 1991, I think it was, in a journal of nutrition article, which, which described nutrition the way we understand it today, which is not just biological, but encompassing the social and behavioral sciences, epidemiology, uh, and, and from molecules to organisms up to the population level. After the protein uh, gap uh, was the energy gap where there was a lot of focus in the 60s and 70s around making up for energy deficits in in the population uh, and uh, in the 70s and 80s there was a lot of focus on multi-sectoral nutrition planning applied nutrition programs nutritional surveillance were dominant themes and then in the period after that, especially the next 10 years, there was a major emphasis on micronutrient deficiencies. This is when Micronutrients Initiative based in Ottawa started and funded an incredible number of efficacy trials looking at whether iron should be given daily or weekly in different doses and whether it should be packaged with other micronutrients or singly and all those kinds of questions. So in the period, in the, especially in the last 10 years, some of this happened, of course, before, but particularly in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of things going on, discourse uh, in, globally in nutrition around growth faltering, low birth weight, maternal undernutrition, iodine, vitamin A, iron and zinc, diarrhea, HIV, uh, infant and young child feeding practices, and then other issues that are related, female time constraints, uh, household income, livelihoods, agricultural production, food insecurity, environment, uh, and urbanization. So those are things that are being talked about on the problem side. And then on the solution side, there's also lots of stuff being discussed um, that I've listed here. Growth monitoring, 
uh, supplementary feeding, exclusive breastfeeding, complementary feeding, nutrition education, behavior change communication, oral rehydration therapy, child spacing, fortification, you can read the rest. So a lot of things are under discussion, a lot of partial solutions to, to the issue. And most controversially now and fairly recently is, is ready to use foods, plumpy nut, the idea that this has revolutionized emergency feeding, and appropriately so, because it's been a major advance, but now the idea is, well, why can't we use these products to prevent malnutrition instead of just uh, treating it when it gets really severe? Okay, so that was one slice. Another slice is if we just think about anthropometry for a second. Anthropometry is important because it's still, by far, the single most important health indicator used worldwide, um, the growth of children. It's used to distinguish populations, uh, subpopulations, individuals at all different levels. Uh, what we know about this sort of uh, in terms of prevalence for the world is actually only about 20 years. It's amazing that the first report of the World Nutrition Situation from the Standing Committee on Nutrition, part, uh, the Coordinating Committee for the UN, uh, was in 1992 using underweight prevalence. In 1991, WHO started its review of the uses and interpretations of anthropometry and produced this book about this thick is sort of a Bible of, of how to think about uh, this. Uh, the, it was published in November 95. Uh, the, in, uh, that led the infant subcommittee that I was part of uh, had reviewed the literature and determined that there was absolutely a need for new growth standards, that the growth references that were being used were completely inappropriate, were leading to bad decisions for infant feeding. Um, and, and so that was um, initiated in a meeting in January 1996. In 97 was the third report of the World Nutrition Situation from the SCN, and that used stunting prevalence. At that point, there was enough information about stunted children, uh, children's height and stunting to be able to do that. Um, the the, the multi-center growth reference study started in Brazil in um, 1997 and then was involved five other countries uh, beyond Brazil and then the growth standards were released in 2006. This is important because from the point of view of child welfare in the world in that decade and probably the, this decade that we're now in this is the most important single public health action that's occurred globally because because of how this is going to change and make more appropriate decisions that are made about infant feeding. So some, another slice is thinking about some other milestones. Um, in 1988, um, Al Sommer, who then became eventually the dean of uh, the public health school in uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, did some work in Indonesia and then in Nepal when people didn't believe the work from Indonesia, showing that, um, that lack of vitamin A caused child mortality and it was possible to give vitamin A capsules to alleviate the problem on a very large scale. So that was a home run, that, that was a game changer. In 1990, the UNICEF conceptual model was introduced, I'll show you that shortly. Um, in 1993 was work that we did. The other thing that sort of went with this that, that was a game changer in terms of tying together infection and malnutrition and how it relates to mortality. Um, those things uh, fit into the Global Burden of Disease Project, which I'll sh again show you some results briefly. And then from that, a series of things happened. The Lancet Survival Series, the Copenhagen Consensus of Economists, there were two rounds of that. The World Bank Repositioning Statement in 2006, the Lancet Child Development Series, which had a strong emphasis on nutrition in 2007, and then the Lancet Nutrition Series, which was released just three years ago now. Okay, so Al Summers' work launched a series of studies that were done. This is, this is uh, probably the first meta-analysis ever done in nutrition. Uh, was uh, done in, in 1993, and it basically showed, um, this is a relative risk of one here, so most of these studies were off to this side, uh, and the overall effect was 0.77, that's a relative risk, showing that, that in comparing two groups, if you gave vitamin A capsules, you'd reduce mortality by that much. So this had a dramatic effect, and at this point, people were willing to believe what Summer had produced. This is the UNICEF conceptual framework, which, which really helped tie together, especially this part right here, tying together the notion of food, food security and agriculture with behavioral factors in terms of parenting and care, with environmental and health factors in terms of hygiene and sanitation, unifying that and the fact that there's these more basic causes at higher levels.
So that was important in 1990. This is a picture from an SCN report in 93 showing the vicious cycle of disease and inadequate dietary intake there on the left. And clinicians had known about this since the 40s, particularly people working in Mexico and Latin America had clinicians understood this very well. And there was a review done in 1968 that was beautifully done and it had zero impact um, because there was no epidemiologic data. And so in 93, we published a paper in American Journal of Public Health, which basically showed that malnutrition increased the case fatality rate of infection, that malnutrition directly results in more than half of child deaths because of this, and that the majority of those deaths result not from the most severe, which is less in prevalence, but from the mild to moderate category because it has such a high prevalence. And so then WHO produced a figure like this. At that point, they got 60. Oh, this was based on, I think, Laura Caulfield's uh, revision of what we did. And, and the figure there was 60%. In the Lancet Nutrition Series, they've downweighted that to 35%. But it doesn't matter. The point is, it's a big number. And malnutrition potentiates the infectious, the, the result of infection from all of the different diseases that affect children. Okay, so that led in the Lancet Survival Series in 2003 uh, to an estimate of about 11 million child deaths at that point. I think it's about 9 million is the estimate now. And to just give you some perspective, that's like 20 per minute children dying globally or about 200 airplane crashes per day, to put it in some perspective. About three-quarters of those occur in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. About two-thirds of those, this was the main point of the child survival series, the two-thirds of those could be prevented by interventions that are available and are feasible for implementation at high levels of population coverage, but it just wasn't happening. The other thing was that there's contention for resources, and this was a graph from the Lancet Survival Series looking at USAID funding um, here, the, the proportion and the total amount of funding going for child survival programs. And you can see there's a drop off here around 2000. What happened in 2000? Uh, no, that, huh? George Bush was elected. Well, George Bush decided that his administration decided to launch a new program on HIV and AIDS called the presidential PEPFAR, whatever. Presidential's program on HIV. And so what happened was the money from child survival was diverted to that program. That's not to say that was a bad decision. That, you know, we, we could discuss that afterwards. But the point is that there were, there's not enough resources to do everything. And so here's a case where child survival suffered at the expense of a different condition. OK, the Global Burden of Disease Project was started in, in 96. This is a later version. I can't even remember what year it is. The main point I wanted to show here is that nutrition is represented in seven out of the 13 risk, major risk factors that are here. So it's um, up at the top is underweight. There's, uh, where are we here, high cholesterol. Um, iron deficiency is here, high BMI, zinc deficiency, low fruit and vegetable intake, and vitamin A deficiency are all high in the list of the things that cause disease, and nutrition's well represented. The Copenhagen consensus in 2008, this is a group of, I believe it's seven Nobel Prize winning economists who were brought together in order to help make decisions about where should the world be investing if it wants to promote development? What are the best investments? And nutrition accounts for five out of the top nine invest, best investments. Um, and the top nine out of the 30 solutions that were ranked. And so uh, micronutrient supplementation, fortification, um, biofortification, um, and community-based nutrition programs are, are all there. Um, oh, and nutrition programs at school are all there, five out of the top nine. So the, even the economists think that nutrition's a good investment. This is very powerful. The World Bank in 2006 issued a repositioning statement. Again, it was a very powerful statement coming from the economic community that basically said, the bottom line is here, is that improved nutrition can be a, a driver of growth. They don't mean child growth, they mean economic growth. Because it's estimated that worldwide GDP losses were more than two to three percent. For example, in Vietnam in 2007, a quick back of the envelope calculation, said that Vietnam was losing one year of economic productivity every 18 years because of undernutrition. 
So this leads to a reduction in lifetime earnings, it, and it leads to loss of height in adolescence. It's related to loss of uh, schooling and, and delays in starting schooling. That, that uh, WHO, um, sorry, the World Bank report also emphasized that there are short routes, what are called short routes, intervention specific to nutrition, but there are also long routes that have to do with more developmental, improving overall economies, improving agriculture, improving food production policy uh, things, and was advocating that both be done. Okay, other support came from the child uh, development series that Lancet published. And uh, I'll just show two graphs that are just illustrative of the idea that this is some early work that was done in Jamaica. Uh, this is um, children who were not stunted, and this is a measure of their um, cognitive ability over there. And, and so then they had these two groups, and, and one group was assigned to get stimulation, cognitive stimulation, and the other group didn't. And you can see that there was an improvement even among the stunted children. So there was a tie between the idea that, that cognitive stimulation could overcome some of the effects of nutrition, but there was also that improving nutrition could, could improve um, cognitive development. So this is showing, for example, that a supplemented group of children did much better over time um, than did a non-supplemented group, uh, both in Jamaica and Bogota. All right, so then, then three years ago, um, after a uh, long and we can say fairly contentious process, there were a lot of authors involved, a lot of, a lot of people involved, uh, there were five papers published by The Lancet in succession um, on nutrition. Uh, the first paper talks about prevalence and short-term consequences, deaths and disease burdens quantified in DALIs, uh, disability-adjusted life years. The second paper focused on sort of the longer term educational and economic effects along the lines I was just talking about. Paper three was looking at evidence that tied interventions, specific interventions to reducing the effects of undernutrition. And then papers four and five dealt with, four dealt with national level issues and level five with, with the global architecture for nutrition. Okay, so these are the latest uh, stunting figures that, that, that I could find. Um, and I just put it up here, if we look at the rows that are red, um, in Africa, there's been virtually no progress from 1990 to 2007. So over that, over that period of time, we've actually not really accomplished very much at all in Africa. In the north, there's been some improvement, but in the rest of Africa, there hasn't. In, in Asia, there's been some improvement, but it started at about 50% and is now down to about 31% uh, of children stunted. And um, there's been a lot of progress in the east, but in South Central, which started off at about 61, it can't really be any higher than that because if the prevalence of stunting is, if it's, the conditions are any worse than that, kids are dying too fast that you can even measure them. So this is about as high as you can get. And, um, and that's gone from about 61 down to about 40, but that's still very high. We know that, uh, this is from the Lancet paper one, I think, uh, that about 178 million, it's a little bit higher now, uh, million children are, are stunted across the world. And you can see the red areas are the ones we were just talking about where it's highest prevalence. About 90% of all stunted children live in 36 countries. So focusing on just 36 countries would deal with most of the problem. And I just wanted to point out that within countries, though, there's tremendous variation. This happens to show for Vietnam, uh, where, uh, where Hanoi is in the capital, is around 7%, but there are provinces still as high as 50%, and the average is here at about 30. So e even within a country, there can be tremendous variation. So why does that happen? Well, we know that happens both because of what happens in utero um, when when the, the infant is, is growing as a fetus, and so there are processes going on, starting off with the nutritional status of the mother in adolescence uh, that affect birth size, that affects stunting, and then, of course, there are also postnatal factors. Some work that uh, Lan and I did um, using some data we have from Bangladesh estimates that this pathway, this side, is about a quarter of the variation in stunting at two years, and the rest is postnatal. And so what that means is that there's a window of opportunity. There's a clear consensus now that there's a window of opportunity from 
conception or preconception up to 24 months is when things need to happen. That after that, there are irreversible effects, both physically in terms of stature, but also developmentally in terms of cognition and other things. And so that's where the focus um, should be. Lancet paper five emphasized that the global architecture for nutrition, how we all work together globally, is complicated, and there are a number of problems. We can start anywhere. Inadequate human resources, unpredictable and flexible and inadequate funding. In, uh, the strategies aren't good enough. Limited sticking power of policies. Structures that get in the way. Weak coordination, extremely weak coordination. Weak linkages. And all of that leads to implementation problems. This is from the World Bank report, but the Lancet series also talked about it in terms of fragmentation and rivalry. There's lots and lots of actors out there. Um, and they don't all work very well together. So in academia, the bilaterals, countries donating to countries, uh, the public-private partnerships, uh, and the NGOs, multilaterals, UN agencies, government agencies all need to work together, and we haven't done a very good job of that. Lancet Paper 4 was very important, um, and because of the emphasis that was placed on what needed to happen in countries. And so I thought it was worth just quickly going through the seven main points that, that were emphasized, which is getting nutrition on the national agenda, building a stable agenda that survives political administrative changes so it doesn't, you don't get it on and then it just gets kicked off by something else later, and building recognition that nutrition, we have the evidence for it, but building recognition that it's related to human, social, and economic development. So that's, that's about awareness and agenda setting. Doing the right things at high high impact actions at high coverage and incorporating nutrition into the long root kinds of things. Not doing the wrong things. Stop doing things that don't work and free up those resources for things that will work. That's a very hard problem in most countries. Acting at scale, doing things in a large way that involves inevitably thinking about the private sector, trying to reach those that need increased coverage. Um, using data for decision making, data about whether things work but also data that, uh, that allow us to have public accountability, to convince people that the investment they've made is pay paying off and that their, their resources they've allocated are being stewarded well. Uh, and then building strategic and operational capacity, which is inevitably going to be location specific and involves not just training people, but, in tra but building institutions. It also talked about um, that for a long time sector-based approaches had been used, meaning that, okay, we do this in health, we try doing this in agriculture, we do this in education, and that that doesn't work because nutrition isn't well-placed um, or not either not at all or it's not well-placed in most countries, and that's true even in the United States. That power and money flows through the sectors, which means nutrition is often at the, the bottom of the barrel in terms of pecking order, and that attempts simply to get the sectors to work together for nutrition isn't the solution. We've tried it, actually. We've tried it for a long time, and it doesn't tend to work very well because the sector heads uh, have very strong responsibilities for whatever it is they're supposed to be doing, and they don't easily divert their attention to nutrition. Um, and so the, what was needed was to converge nutrition into each of the relevant sectors, and the World Bank... Um, argued that that should start with the health sector, and we'll come back to that um, in a bit. There was also discussion about the need to build consensus through social political processes, capacity, and commitment um, in order to move these things forward. And related to that, some examination of what has worked in the past, particularly around breastfeeding promotion and diarrheal disease management, suggests that we have to motivate people and understand what motivates them. We have to build knowledge and skills, and we have to build um, institutions and structures that will support the things that we want to do. And that that has to be done at a lot of different levels. Okay, so all of this up until now that I've described is, is basically been on the problem side. It's understanding the extent of the problem and the impact that the problem has had. And so at this point, and this point we're talking about is about five years ago. There was, there was and, and certainly was solidified when the Lancet Nutrition Series was published three years ago, that there's very strong reason why we should be investing in nutrition globally. So now the question is, what are we doing to respond to it? 
So in January 2006, um, the World Bank, anticipating the release of their report in, in a few weeks, um, let a development grant to the, it was hosted by ICDRB, um, the institution that, that started in the 60s to combat uh, cholera initially uh, in Bangladesh. And uh, I was at Cornell at the time, and we were a subcontractor to ICDRB for this project. And really, the intellectual lead was, was with us. Um, so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you uh, a little bit about that. Um, and, and what's been learned from that. And, and one of the first things that we did was the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation at that point had a nutritionist, Catherine Christ, on board, but they didn't have a nutrition strategy and they decided they, they should have a nutrition strategy in order to move forward. And so we were asked to be part of the two-month uh, insane operation where they hired a consulting firm. It was an am amazing thing to be part of. And in, in a two-month period, they forged a nutrition strategy. In 2007, the Standing Committee on Nutrition meeting, which is an annual meeting, was held in Rome. Um, at that meeting, Jean-Louis Sarbib, who is the senior vice president of the World Bank, who with Mira Shakar, who's a nutritionist, had um, catalyzed the development of this repositioning statement and this development grant, came to that meeting and sternly, sternly um, reprimanded the nutrition community for being fragmented, for having clear priorities for having the opportunity to establish clear priorities but failing to do it because people were always arguing with each other. And it was very dramatic. I mean, it was, uh, he was highly, highly respected and he didn't pull back any punches at all. In 2008, building from the, the, their nutrition strategy, the Gates Foundation started the Alive and Thrive program, which is, runs for five years up to 2013. It, the winning bid was, uh, was primed by the Academy for Educational Development and their various partners throughout the world in three countries. Um, one of the requirements was that, the, that what was implemented needed to touch 30 million children in five years, which was very ambitious. And, and so the winning bid um, involved Bangladesh, Vietnam, and Ethiopia. Um, Bangladesh and, and Vietnam uh, were involved in part because of some preliminary work that had been done as part of the mainstream nutrition initiative, so they weren't starting from scratch. Um, and Ethiopia, there were some other reasons why that was strategic as well. And so, and we have some ties to this. Lan worked in Vietnam last summer as part of this pro program in Rasmi. Where did Rasmi go? Rasmi is over there, and a week ago Rasmi returned from her 15 months of time devoted to Alive and Thrive in Bangladesh. Okay, so let me tell you just a little bit about some of this, and then I'm going to come back to this point. Okay, so in, in the Mainstream Nutrition Initiative, one of the things that, that we realized early on was that we needed to have a simple frame to be able to communicate with people some, some a very basic idea. And that's depicted here, and it's really the center part that's important. Um, so much of nutrition emphasis has been on what we've called the epidemiological, for lack of a better name. It's a perfectly fine name, but anyway, we've tried some other names. But nutrition at root is a, has been a biological science. And although, as I described before, by the early 90s, there was clear consensus that nutrition needed to be also a social science and a population science and a behavioral science, it still tends to be strongly dominated by thinking about causes and problems and thinking biologically. And, and, and we see that over and over again where people argue about dosages of things when the real issue is either needing to develop on the social political realm or needing to develop on the operational realm. So by those things I mean the epidemiological issues are things like what should we be trying to deliver, what's critical, when during a life cycle, what dosage, how long, what duration, those kinds of questions. The operational is more about how, how and who, how can we deliver things in a way that's integrated with what's already going on, who can do that, what's the, the manpower, woman power to be able to do that, how much will delivering key interventions cost, those kinds of issues are operational issues. And the social political issues are about how do people think about the problem in a particular country, what are the values and interests of the people and organizations 
who will need to take action to move the agenda forward, and why might them buy into why might those organizations buy into the agenda or not? People don't do things just because it's the right thing to do. They may want to do that because it's the right thing to do, but they have other responsibilities. And so if we don't mesh people's interests and find common ground, then they're not able to act. So those are it's an a sampling of some of the kinds of questions. So as part of the Mainstream Nutrition Initiative, we had an opportunity to do some work related to this. So, uh, and this work has just come out in the last couple of weeks as two of the papers have been published. This is Karen Lapping. She was our lead person in Vietnam. And this has just been published in Health Policy and Planning. And over two years from 2006 to 2008, she basically participated in and studied the development of a new nutrition strategy in Vietnam. It's the first, I think, real prospective policy analysis that's been done um, in nutrition. And what she found, for example, is that the key strategies and actions were her placement there as a participant observer, which catalyzed a lot of what happened, orientation meetings with various organizations that were, were um, that not only got support, but made sure that there was buy-in from people in the country. There were site visits to remote and minority areas to better understand the implementation issues. There was formation of a partnership group, which didn't exist before. This was co-hosted by the Asian Development Bank, so it wasn't just Karen. There was someone else there who helped move this, and a series of targeted meetings. Some key factors were this, this cohesive policy community that WHO, UNICEF, not FAO, they didn't play so nicely, but uh, the major NGOs, the National Institute of Nutrition where Lon worked before she came here, um, and others all got together and saw the potential of working together and did that. There were also clearly defined internal and external frames. Internal frames are how the policy community talks to itself, and external is how it talks outside to others. Um, that those were articulated through a series of high-profile events that functioned as policy windows. Some of those occurred naturally. Uh, most of the ones that were critical, we actually created. And the key drivers of all of this were personal relationships with people in key institutions where there was enough trust among people to, to work together even on really hard problems, and the, the, the ability to identify, create, and then make use of these opportunities that catalyze the process. So one of those, before I get to this, one of those was just going back to the, um, let me just back up here to this point, that the Standing Committee on Nutrition meeting was held in Hanoi in 2008. That was by design. We had started lobbying the year before that the next meeting would be held in Hanoi, and the technical secretary for the SEN agreed to that and worked really hard to make it happen. And and the key point that punctuated everything was having the deputy, deputy Minister of Health give a keynote address in which he endorsed the new nutrition strategy. That would not have happened if this meeting didn't take place. So from the point of view of, of moving things in Vietnam, this was essential and highly, highly successful. Okay. So Vietnam was one of the five countries we were working in. There were two other countries in Africa that, I, that are not, where I won't mention in this picture. But the other countries were Bangladesh, Bolivia, Guatemala, and Peru. In, uh, in Bangladesh, BRAC, had, the big NGO in Bangladesh, had decided that nutrition needed to be incorporated as part of its health program and wanted help doing that. Uh, the presidents of Bolivia and Peru had both declared that they wanted to eliminate child malnutrition in a short period of time. Uh, say uh, around five years. And in Guatemala, um, Andres Bertrand, who is from the Bertrand Rum family, very influential family, uh, had discovered that malnutrition was a problem in his country. He was rich. He didn't discover this before. But he did discover this and decided this was appalling. And single-handedly, basically engineered that malnutrition got on the national agenda during the presidential election and got every president to promise that if elected, they would do something about the problem. And the person who got elected then appointed him to a new secretariat where he could deal with the problem. And then he got fired because the president's wife didn't like the fact he wasn't supporting her program. But anyway, that's how things go sometimes. Um, so Wendy Gonzalez, who's a doctoral student here, did the work with another student in Guatemala. So we basically emphasize four messages in the paper that just got published that you can't see down here. 
One is strengthening the full spectrum of policy activities as necessary if large scale and sustained reductions on nutrition to be achieved. So we've got to deal at the policy level in a broad way that high priority should be given to strengthening strategic capacities. I'll come back to what that means later. Um, because it's fundamental for a long-term nutrition agenda that can be sustained at a, at, a, at a country level, that these are especially relevant to the major global initiatives that I'm about to tell you about um, because of the importance of country-led processes and convergence of organizations, and that if that these investments, if they actually, the investments that were about to be made and the investments that have already been made in the efficacy and nutrition interventions won't produce sustainable results unless we deal with these things, unless we deal with some of these weaknesses. Okay, so coming back to this, this meeting in Hanoi was a complete disaster from the point of view of the global nutrition community. The meeting was incredibly painful. Actually, uh, when I had an opportunity to go with Karen and the Gates Foundation nutrition advisors down to the Central Highlands, I took it, that's where that photograph was taken, just to get out of there, it was so bad. And literally, the, the global architecture for nutrition collapsed as of that meeting. No meetings have been held since then, and we, everything was completely at sea. Okay, well, what happens when things completely fall apart is people start picking up the pieces and rebuilding. So. At the International Congress of Nutrition meeting in the fall of 2009 in Bangkok, James Garrett and I organized a session on policy processes that was highly successful that talked about some of these issues. Um, UNICEF and WFP, and I think others have now bought into it, started a, a program uh, that's called REACH, um, which I can't remember what it stands for, but which was basically doing the kind of thing that we did in the Mainstream Nutrition Project um, and doing that in a number of countries. So that started and that's still ongoing and that's been very well led and gone well after some missteps at first. Uh, and then out of the ashes started what was called the Global Action Plan for Nutrition where Mayor Shakar in the World Bank as well as some others tried to build on what, what had been done up until this point including some economic analyses with the goal of approaching the G8 countries, the top eight economic powers in the world, in a meeting in Canada in 2010. And they succeeded in doing that. They didn't get the discussion into the main G8 agenda, but they got it into a side meeting in a way that was noticeable enough that it had an impact. The thing is that this was never going to be sustainable because it didn't have, it needed leadership that was at a much higher profile. Mira's great, but she's, you know, at a, mid-level within the World Bank, and she's in the bank. So there's lots of, you know, people, not everybody likes the World Bank. So there needed to be a different platform for this. This was never going to work. And this was much discussed at this meeting. And so um, what I'm going to tell you about now is, is the current opportunity, which is a convergence of two things. An initiative from the UN Secretary General, so that's as high as you can get, and uh, basically one of the deputy secretaries, David Nabarro. And in last September, uh, Hillary Clinton gave an address with the UN Secretary General there where she announced a program called A Thousand Days. A Thousand Days is because of, if you take the, the days of gestation and then the two years postpartum, that adds up to about a thousand. And she did a fantastic job. And so I'll show you the web address at the end. You really should go and read through, you can even listen to it if you want. There's a little film that she showed that you can see, it's very nice. Um, she was, she just did a fantastic job. She hit all the right issues in exactly the right way and it was just beautifully done. So there's now a collaboration between the State Department here in the U.S. and the U.N. Secretary General to try to move things forward. All right, so what's that about? Okay. So, first of all, one of the motivations is we have the Millennium Development Goals which were supposed to cover the period from 1990 up to 2015, that 25-year period. And um, if you do the math, that's four years from now. And we're not on target. Um, the, the, the first goal includes poverty and hunger reduction, and we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it, um, as shown here, that, that the target globally for undernutrition is here, and, and there's going to be a gap of about 10%. So we're not going to make it. And so, and not only that, the number of people, just because 
even though the, the prevalence is going down slightly the, because of population growth, the sheer number of people who are malnourished are, is increasing all the time. So, so far, this initiative has already gotten more than 100 organizations to buy into this. And whenever organizations buy in, they want their logo shown. So you will see, if you go to the website, all the logos. Um, the motivation, the rationale that's given, oh, and if you go to the website, there's two documents. There's uh, what's called the Framework for Action, which is depicted there, and then there's what's called the Roadmap. So this is describing what needs to be done, basically, and how to think about it. And then there's a Roadmap about how to get there. So in the framework, it talks about why do we need to do something now? It's because there's renewed focus on human rights. So it talks about the importance of dealing with this issue from a human rights perspective, not just from an economic perspective or we like children perspective or, or, or whatever, but it, it's simply because from a human rights perspective. The second point is that there's evidence. The evidence I've summarized for you, there's plenty of evidence that there can be impact if we don't, there, will, there is impact if we don't do something and there can be impact if we do something. Um, and then third, that there's a widespread recognition that we have the interventions, that we know the technologies, if you like, or the interventions in order to change things, but we have to figure out how to make use of that in a way that's at large scale and with broad coverage. Okay, so, and then the framework talks about starting from the principle that what ultimately matters is what happens at the country level, that it's all about the countries. And I think we've seen in the last five years tremendous shift in this, that people in the, the major international agencies have really started to buy into the fact that they are there to support countries, not their own agenda. Um, so that it has to be, um, there have to be individual countries, nutrition strategies and programs, that draw on international evidence good practice, but they have to be owned uh, and fit and build on the country's own specific needs and capabilities. So for example, Wendy Gonzalez in her doctoral work is working as part of the Mesoamerican Initiative, which is attempting to do this in eight countries in Central America. And she's actually interested in the processes of trying to bring this about. Um, second thing is that we need to sharply scale up the evidence-based cost-effective interventions, focusing on this window of opportunity, this critical window of preconception uh, up to 24 months. And um, there's an estimate of how much that would cost. Sue Horton, who's a, uh, an economist at the University of Waterloo, has not single-handedly, but without her, none of this would have happened. She's the one who sold nutrition to the, the, um, the, to the Copenhagen Consensus of Economists. She's did the economic analysis that put those issues in their heads. And she's written a paper with some others that have come up with an estimate of how much it would cost. And the cost is about $10 billion per year. Okay, so we can fall off our chairs and think about 10 billion is a big number, but let's think about this in South Carolina terms. The projected state deficit going into this budget cycle was about $800 million. That's almost $1 billion, okay? That was the deficit, that's not the budget, that's the deficit. So $10 billion in the global scene is not a lot of money. It's a relatively small amount of money. Okay, so, and they're basically saying if there was an investment of about that much per year that we could deal with this problem. The framework also talks about the need to have a multi-sectoral approach, not forcing the sectors to just work together blindly to try to solve it, but working with each sector in a coordinated way that integrates nutrition into the sectors and then uses indicators of undernutrition as one of the ways in which we tie people to whether or not they're making progress. And the three sectors that the framework talks about is most important are food insecurity and agriculture, social protection, and then the health sector. But it also talks about education, water and sanitation, and then some cross-cutting issues of gender equity, uh, governance, uh, state fragility this is a particularly a problem in Africa as we well know. Uh, from just from the news, um, and, and also uh, talked about the need to provide substantially scaled up domestic and external assistance for country-owned programs and capacity. All right. I'm going to skip that one. Um, in the roadmap, what they talk about are basically three things. 
that won't be a surprise. One is we have to act to achieve high coverage of interventions that we think will work. We have to have a focus on nutrition to integrate it within development. So these are the short, short route strategies, these are the long route strategies. And then to continue to emphasize and hold people accountable for the human rights perspective into this. All right, so that's the way the roadmap is, is designed. And they talk there about the interventions. So um, the two co-leaders of what's happening now are led by David Nabarro, who's uh, the person directly reports to the UN Secretary General, and Denise Cotino, who is uh, the technical secretary for the Standing Committee on Nutrition. So they are working together to move this forward. Um, Denise is uniquely positioned to do this. She's from Brazil. She, she was um, head of the WHO Nutrition Department for a while. Then she provided leadership at REACH. Um, she's done a number of other things, and then she's been brought into this role. When Denise presented this, this was beautiful. She kept a completely straight face. As soon as this was presented, some of the people at the meeting I was at in January immediately reacted, what's deworming doing there? That's not one of the evidence-based interventions. That's not an nutrition, the Lancet Nutrition Series. We shouldn't have that on the list. And then they sort of all caught themselves and said, oh, well, okay, let's, let's continue on. Just illustrating how passionate people get about these kinds of particulars. Um, anyway, so this is the, the list that was that's in the roadmap. Um, and I mean, it's kind of hard to argue, regardless of the extent of evidence, that deworming children is not a good thing to do. Anyway, OK. So in there, it talks about um, act, mechanisms and actions at five levels. So uh, action at the country level know-how and capacity development, global support functions, financing pathways, and it's hard to see down here, but this one's governance, okay? And then it talks about, in the document, which you can read, about sort of mechanisms for each one of those, about country platforms, how do we scale, design and implementation issues, monitoring, reporting, and accounting, uh, communications networks, and uh, knowledge, standards, and policies, and financing, and then leadership and stewardship issues, and institutional arrangements. And it also emphasizes that there's lots of actors, and so they all have to be involved in all of this, whether they're NGOs or civil society, et cetera, um, with the government in the lead. Um, it emphasizes that there needs to be a shared vision with people actually working together, and it, and it talks in the way that I think we need to talk about, which is to be very explicit that we, we must have mutual respect, confidence, and trust if we're going to do this with each other. Um, we have to minimize conflicts of interest, generate excitement for a common goal, work together towards this goal for a common code of conduct. This may seem obvious, but the field of nutrition has done a horrible job of this historically. And this is the point where we've got to step up and say we can behave in a better way. So that's working together. And then the other part's about decisions. Um, follow the numbers uh, to, to do stock taking and mapping, to set clear targets and then go after them, to mobilize sufficient funds and continually track progress. So there's a transition team. Um, that's, uh, that's been appointed with the support of the, the SCN Secretariat, Denise Cotino, and then many other stakeholders. They're, they started this process in November with an end date of June to actually get this in place. Uh, the intent is to encourage country leadership, multi-stakeholder platforms, stock taking and mapping, plans, the kinds of things we were just talking about. It's important to bring together stakeholders um, in the international scene, and those stakeholders are going to have to include the private sector, something that the nutrition community has had tremendous difficulty doing. Um, and there was just some practice for this. The IFPRI organized a 2020 conference in India two weeks ago, I think it was. And is that right? Two weeks? Yeah, something like that. And, you know, and, and it hit the news that PepsiCo was one of the sponsors, and somebody from PepsiCo gave an address, and it was in the news about how horrible that was. We've got to deal with those issues. And so it talks about the need for that. So um, David Nabarro is chairing this as a special representative. They have monthly meetings. Um, the, the, what's the, the, the actions are under the, the patronage of the, the SCN. Uh, there's a team of 13 individuals from different constituencies who are acting as an executive committee. There's strong roles from the UN agencies, and it's linked to a number of other bodies. Um, 
and their job is to, to advance this roadmap. They're doing that. They've established six task forces, um, and they're sort of going to move forward from there. So the, the task forces, um, I think we've covered that. The task forces are, are listed here, strengthening in-country capacity, another one on communication for scaling up, a third one on civil society participation. How do we get buy-in from countries and have regular people buying into this? Um, engagement of development partners, meaning the international agencies, but also governments, bilateral donors, the engagement of the business community, and then how do we put a system in place to monitor and evaluate this and also report on a regular basis so that if this kind of investment is made, the people who are making the investment get the information they need to sustain their investment. It also talks about the need for studies on governance options and processes that lead to the emergence and empowerment of nutrition leaders. So let me finish up by just talking a little bit about what we can do. We need to have research on how to achieve strategic capacity for both individuals and institutions. And by this is meant the capacity to we need to learn more about how do we broker agreements? How do we resolve conflicts in the context of this? How do we build relationships that'll work? How do we respond to recurring challenges and opportunities and undertake the communications that are necessary? We need more research on social political processes. We're just at the beginning of this with the work I've described for you and, and work that James Garrett has catalyzed uh, from his post at the World Bank on how do we build awareness, consensus, commitment, planning and design, implementation, evaluation and learning, and then turning that learning into change. We also need to know more about operational processes that, in, that especially involve understanding worker and recipient motivations, demands of capacity, capabilities, something that Rasmi is working on for her dissertation. What are the right contact points and delivery mechanisms, and how do we integrate things into health systems? And then in terms of epidemiologic work, in particular, we need to know more about how responses to actions are dependent on conditions, biological, behavioral, social, and physical conditions. Amy Frith, when she was here for her job talk, talked some, some about this from some work she had done as an example. And we know a lot more, we know that we're at the tip of the iceberg in trying to understand some of this. For example, we know that we shouldn't be giving iron to children who are already iron replete if they're in a malaria area because they're more likely to die. That's an important thing to know. We can also contribute, because we're an educational institution, to capacity building in terms of strategic capacity, as we talked about, operational capacity, understanding opportunities constraints from insider's viewpoint. It's, it's great that we understand it from our viewpoint, but we need to understand it more uh, from on-the-ground perspective, about motivation, about the contact points and delivery mechanisms, and about integration. And there's also capacity building we still need to keep doing on the epidemiological. And then finally, we have some relative advantages to contribute. One is that we have capabilities. We, we demonstrate this to ourselves all the time of working together in collaborative and disciplinary ways. That's something that we're good at in this school uh, and across the university. We have interest and experience on both the problem and solution sides, and we have capable investigators who, are, who, who can work across both of those and integrate across both of those. And we have expertise in the biological, behavioral, social, and physical conditions, something the Nutrition Center has, has been emphasizing and trying to build upon. So, what do you think? Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. But when we think of normal countries, like you 
know Latin America and every, like these people in the country don't read these reports and like the only contact they have with UN official is once a year the Minister of Health going to New York. So I think like these people in these meetings and the academia and the institutions, what do they do about these other countries that don't have more funding to do this? Uh, people in the country don't read the reports and if they do, they just see it in the news. They don't understand and they won't make decisions about this. Right. So how do they like well, that's that's exactly right. That's that's what meant. That's what's meant by strategic capacity building. Uh, when I when Simeon Anima and I were at this uh, Live and Thrive meeting, we had dinner with um, a former graduate student uh, who works at a, uh, an international agency who made the comment that there's too much money in nutrition right now. Which I just said, what you can't say that. I knew it, I knew what was meant. What was meant was that relative to our capacity to use it well. We actually don't have the capacity right now to use the money well that's already in nutrition. And now we're talking about moving to $10 billion a year, and I think there's a real chance this will happen. The, the problem is that if we dump $10 billion or even a small, small fraction of that right now on the world, we don't have the capacity to make use of it for all the reasons you described, Jessica, and we have to fix that. We have to get make have all of these things happen in order to be able to make use of that kind of re resource flow, which I think will occur. The Mesoamerican Initiative is a good example where Gates funded a planning grant and then they accepted the planning grant and Carlos Slim, which is tobacco money, by the way, from Mexico largely, uh, is being used to fund the project and it's attempting to get eight countries simultaneously to work together to, to try to deal with the issues. But I mean, you know, El Salvador is one of the countries. You know very well that there's going to be major challenges when it hits the country for all the reasons you described. And we have got to figure out how to get past that. No, I don't think so. But I think, you know, there's some steps in that direction that we, uh, USC is one of five partners for this project that NHLBI, uh, one of the national NIH institutes, has funded. They're investing $29 million in a project to try to understand what's going on in communities and what's going on with things that are working and not working. That's of a magnitude like the Alive and Thrive program, which is 77 million. If you split that across three countries, it's about the same amount of money. So that's a, that's a pretty large investment. Um, and and that's, that's going on now. That's a major step at, at recognizing the magnitude of the problem and putting that much money, money into it. Now, whether we succeed in doing what we should be doing with that money, we, you know, we don't know yet. We're trying. Um, but, uh, the same exact things have to happen here with re relation to obesity prevention. Absolutely. We've got to have a movement, a national movement, to, to, to deal with it that's going to cover multiple sectors and where industry is going to have to com come in and cooperate in a way that they never have before, et cetera. All of those things have to happen. Otherwise, we're going to live with this problem for forever. Um, sure, yeah, there's examples we can point to. Uh, we eradicated smallpox, for example. We came really close to eradicating polio. Um, same with some other tuberculosis. Um, and not quite so close to tuberculosis. So, you know, we can look at a number of other uh, initiatives. Um, it was done with malaria in the Western world. Um, malaria was in Colombia until 1950. Um, so. Yeah, it can be done, but those other examples are, 
ones where there were certain things that, certain features of those problems that lent itself more easily than this is. One of the challenges with nutrition, it involves food. And there's nothing inherently bad about food. There's something inherently bad about mosquitoes that have malaria. So we don't mind killing them. But you can't just kill food. So it's more complicated. And that's going to make this more difficult than some of those other problems. But we certainly haven't solved malaria. Malaria is particularly intractable for biological reasons, but as well as others. Other questions, thoughts?